baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. From assembly lines to highways to surgery rooms, automation and artificial intelligence are taking over our modern world. But are the robots really up to the task? Okay, Google, are you ready to run the world? I've got to admit, I'm not sure. I'm Keith Benconi, this is In-Depth, and today we're going to be speaking with two researchers who have just put out studies examining the promises and pitfalls of automation in two very different fields. First up, we'll be taking on self-driving cars. It's a technology that many of us just can't wait to have. But our first guest warns that the self-driving revolution could actually bring with it a commute that's worse than ever. If we do nothing if we go along that path, then it could be a very dystopian future indeed. Then in the second half, we're going to turn our attention to Google Translate, which, believe it or not, is now actually being used by some doctors to communicate with their patients. But how reliable can an automated online translator really be? We did find, though, that there were some, you know, harmful inaccuracies. All that and more coming up. All right, so let's get acquainted with our first researcher. My name's Adam Millard-Ball. And he is an associate professor of environmental studies at UC Santa Cruz. My focus is on cities and really what role cities have in environmental policy. So he wanted to look at how self-driving cars are likely to impact our traffic situation when they become commonplace. Well, he crunched the numbers and the results he came up with, sorry to say, do not paint a pretty picture of the roads of the future. So one of the downsides of a future with autonomous cars is that they won't need to pay to park. And that might seem a great thing to to most people. Um, Certainly I don't like paying for parking. I don't think anyone enjoys paying for parking. But parking charges are one of the only effective policies that keep people from driving more, that encourage people to ride the bus or the train, that encourage people to walk or bike. And so if we had free parking, then places like downtown San Francisco, many neighborhoods in San Francisco and Berkeley and other parts of the Bay Area would be simply unlivable. All right, so... Walk us through this uh, future scenario. Why is it that when we have autonomous vehicles, we don't need to worry about parking as much? Right now, people have to park 
in most cases next to where they're going or within a short walk. And so you're really at the mercy of the prevailing parking rates in that area. But if you have an autonomous vehicle, then the autonomous vehicle has much more choice. Um, they don't have to pay for parking close by. They have many more options. And those options could be going and finding a cheap space a few miles away. That option could be going home and parking for free at home. Or perhaps most disturbingly, that option could be just driving around very slowly and um, trying to kill time while you finish um, with your business and are ready to get in the car again. Now, I know that you looked into the economics a little bit of this. I, I think some of us may be surprised by the notion that it would be cheaper to keep a car running uh, for a, a long stretch of time rather than just to pay the fee for parking. So that was surprising to me that it was so cheap to cruise and that was it. It was it was a much cheaper option than paying for parking. But then when you look at parking rates in major cities, we're talking about $25 or $30 or up a day in a place like San Francisco and several dollars per hour. Um, that's expensive compared to the cost of driving around at slow speeds, which could be as little as 50 cents an hour in a future with electric cars. Now, those electric cars are much more efficient at, at slow speeds. Um, and so while it's, it's more expensive to drive a mile at a slower speed, if you just want to, if you don't care how far you drive and you just want to kill time, um, then, and then slow speeds are an autonomous vehicle's friend. Okay, so we're imagining this world in which even when we get out of our car, our car is still clogging up the roads, going around, not parking near to where we work, uh, still, you know, taking up some street space, taking up some time on the roads. Give us a sense of how big of an impact that's going to have. And I, I know that this is going to hit pretty close to home for a lot of our listeners because you did a lot of your modeling based on data from San Francisco, I understand. So we found that speeds in on some streets in San Francisco could fall to as little as two miles an hour or even less. And that's because autonomous vehicles are seeking the most congested streets out and making congestion worse. Um, they want to collude in, in, in some way. They want to find each other and get in each other's way. Because if you just want to, 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 to kill some time, um, that's a great way to, to save some money. Now, what you're describing sounds very dystopian. Two miles per hour is essentially dysfunction. That's just complete breakdown of all transport on the roads of San Francisco. Is is that really the nightmare scenario, just a complete breakdown of our, our public roads? Well, that's the nightmare scenario if we don't take some action to, to head this problem off. And the real fundamental problem is that right now we give away public roads for free. Uh, we charge for parking on public streets in places like downtown San Francisco, but we don't charge anything to actually occupy the, the, the travel lanes. We don't charge anything to, to drive. And so it's not surprising that autonomous vehicles can take advantage of that discrepancy, that we're charging for one bit of asphalt, but we're giving another bit of asphalt away for, for free. And so this is certainly within our within our. The, our ability to solve as long as we price the roads correctly. So you are calling for some kind of uh, toll for cars to uh, discourage this sort of non-parking, letting your car drive around way of dealing with parking? Tolls or congestion pricing would be a very 
efficient and effective way of discouraging this behavior. You simply have to make cruising no longer be the cheapest option so that it becomes cheaper for an autonomous vehicle to, to go and, and park, not necessarily downtown, perhaps this is in a remote location, but you have to make it in their financial interest to do something else. And at the same time, charging for road use would have a host of other benefits as well. And so even if autonomous vehicles aren't just circling instead of parking, um, even if they have someone in their car at the time, they're still contributing to congestion, they're still contributing to environmental problems, they're still posing a safety issue for other road users, in the same way as we see from cars on the, the streets in San Francisco, and Ubers and Lyfts and taxis and privately owned vehicles, we see this today. Um, and we have, one of the reasons we have so much congestion and pollution from cars is because we give away the roads for free. It sounds like one of the concerns that you're bringing up here is that among the many things that autonomous driving is going to do is it's going to make driving easier. And the easier that driving gets, the more driving people are going to do and the less public transportation people are going to get. And all the problems that come along with driving are going to come along with more drivers on the road. Is that a little bit of what you're getting at here? Yes, exactly. That's that's what I'm getting at. And people respond to, to prices. And one of the, the reasons why we have so much ridership on BART and on Muni and other transit systems in the Bay Area, one of the reasons why bicycling has really taken off in recent years in places like San Francisco is because of parking pricing. People are pretty rational. They take whatever is the cheapest and fastest way to get to their destination. And if you if, if driving costs more money, whether that's through paying for parking or for paying for road use, then people are going to look for alternatives. And for the streets of San Francisco, it would be hard to physically accommodate everyone if they decided to, to drive. And so we avoid that nightmare scenario right now through charging for, for parking. Um, we have streets that, sure, they're congested, but they're not gridlocked um, all, um, all of the time. Um, we, avo we, we avoid that through parking pricing right now, but in the future we may need to look to other tools, such as road user charging or congestion charging. Well, certainly another half to this would be advocating for more public transit options to make some of those options a little bit more desirable for uh, for riders. But uh, switching topics a little bit, this is not the typical vision that we hear about when we hear about autonomous driving. What we When we typically hear about this, we hear, hear about more options that are going to be opened up by this new technology. Uh, among those options, we often hear that, you know, five years from now, you're never going to have to own a car again. You're just going to be ride sharing uh, for the rest of your life. You're going to, you know, start your day in one car, ride share in one autonomous vehicle. That'll take you to work. Then that car is going to go help somebody else. And then you're going to get another car on uh, your way home. And you're just going to have a ride share existence. You personally will not need to own your own car. If that is the way that our cars are going to be dealt with in the future, does that address some of the parking uh, issues that you've identified? Certainly a future where autonomous cars are shared rather than, than, than privately owned um, would be a great future from an environmental point of view. Um, but I think it's really unclear right now how far that future is going to, 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 to happen. And it might be we're more likely that we end up with a mix of privately owned 
autonomous vehicles and autonomous vehicle fleets in the same way as we do today, that many people still own private cars, but more and more people are forgoing a car and relying on taxis and services like Uber and Lyft. But even if cars are all shared in the future, even if they're all part of fleets, then the same problem arises. Um, you don't have to pay for parking. And those parking charges, which right now are the main force that is encouraging people to, to ride BART or to walk or bike around, um, that goes away um, if you have a shared autonomous vehicle. And so that pricing incentive disappears. And then the second problem is that even shared vehicles will have to park at some point. If demand were completely uniform throughout the day, if a car could go from one trip to the other without a gap in between, then sure, there wouldn't be a parking problem. But we know that's not the case. People want to be at work at roughly the same time and to leave uh, between four and six o'clock and they have to pick up their children from school at roughly the, the same time and there's periods when um, traffic is is heavy and there's periods when traffic is light and so during those downtimes during those periods of lower demand then autonomous vehicles even if they're in a fleet are going to have to figure out what to do and just as we see right now we see um, ubers and lifts that are kind of hanging out at a meter waiting for a ride or, or, or driving around um, that's going to be the same in a in a world of autonomous vehicles You're listening to KCBS's In-Depth, our weekly interview program bringing you conversations on the big events and trends shaping life here in the Bay Area and beyond. Today, we're speaking with two researchers who are trying to get a handle on just what automation will mean for our future. We just finished speaking with Professor Adam Millard-Ball from UC Santa Cruz about some potential bumps in the road on our way to a self-driving utopia. Up next, we're going to turn from automated cars to automated translation in the doctor's office. Well, it turns out that in areas with a lot of cultural diversity, like the Bay Area, for example, many doctors are trying to bridge the language gap by using Google Translate to communicate with their patients, essentially using the free online translation service to turn take two and call me in the morning into... Tomado se llámame por la mañana. But when we're talking about life-saving medical advice, you really want the translation to be pretty darn accurate. That's why our next guest, Dr. Elaine Kung, who is a research fellow at UC San Francisco, decided to put Google Translate to the test. I spoke with her earlier to hear what she found. Dr. Elaine Kung, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to share our work with you all. Absolutely. So let's just start with, I don't think that many of us have had the experience of going into a doctor's office and then having Google Translate uh, sprung out on us. Uh, So give us a little bit of a sense of how common is this technology at this point? Yes, I think that's very uh, dependent on geographic practice patterns. I think because in San Francisco, we have so many patients who have limited English proficiency. I know myself and a lot of our colleagues have been searching for ways to really bridge some of the communication gaps with, um, with these patients. And so I know um, among many of my colleagues, it's definitely been used, 
But speaking to folks from other parts of the country, I know, for example, in Boston, where they also have a large population of individuals who have limited English proficiency, um, there are people who also use Google Translate there. But I think in other parts of the country, it's really used uh, less frequently, less commonly. So I don't have data, um, and I really think it depends a little bit about on practice patterns. Mm. And for me, this story really stood out because it hits to some issues that are very near and dear to my heart personally, because uh, I actually lived for five years in Taiwan. And so I have been that foreigner struggling through the language barrier, trying to strain and understand what my physician is trying to tell me. And it, it can be a really stressful experience. So right. I can say from firsthand experience, uh, the, the sorts of needs that you're talking about here are, are, really, uh, are really real and can be very stressful. Yes, absolutely. I take care of... Um so the clinic where I practice, there about 50% of our patients uh, do not speak English really well enough for a healthcare encounter. And um, about half of those uh, speak Cantonese, and I, I do speak Cantonese, and so I actually have a large uh, population of Cantonese-speaking patients. And um, they really, like you said, really struggle with a lot of um, a lot being able to access healthcare. Um, I think just as an example, not only within the healthcare visit and and understanding the information being communicated to them, um, but for acquiring um, like a durable medical supplies. So uh, acquiring oxygen or acquiring hospital bed deliveries. Um, oftentimes we'll have companies that uh, don't have Cantonese speaking providers, and really trying to coordinate that delivery can can be quite difficult for a lot of my patients. So um, there's definitely I think a, a gap for the quality of care we can provide to patients who don't speak English very well. Hmm. Now let's get into your research a little bit. And before we get into what you found, tell us a little bit about what your actual test was. How did you test Google Translate to see how it was performing? Yeah, sure. So we took a set of 100, um, 100 discharge instructions that were given from real life emergency department discharges um, in, in the hospitals in this area. And then we took those instructions and put them in Google Translate into both Spanish and Chinese. Then we took the Spanish translations and the Chinese translations. We gave them to translators who turned them back into English. And then myself and another clinician, we compared the translated versions to the original English instructions and um, decided you know, whether or not we felt that they seemed accurate in terms of a patient's understanding of the information that they needed to do. All right, so you run it through the system one way, you run it back, you see what it comes up with uh, in the original English. When you did that research, when when you uh, ran all those sentences through, how did it do? It overall um, did much better than I think a lot of us had um, anticipated. I know that a lot of clinicians had been worried about how uh, well Google Translate does and so hadn't been using it. And what we found was that um, in both languages, it was greater than 80% accurate. Um, and in Spanish, it did particularly well. It was, it was just over 90% accurate. Um, we did find, though, that there were some um, you know, harmful inaccuracies. So in Spanish, 2% of all the translations had what we call them um, clinically meaningful harm. And some of them could even be considered life-threatening. And then in the uh, Chinese, we found that about 10% uh, of the translations were um, had clinically meaningful harm as well. So just under 10%. Oh, wow. So that's really interesting because on the one hand, I mean, that's a very high success rate. 90% of the time, just using Google Translate to Chinese, you will get perfectly serviceable translations that you can use for medical advice. On the other hand, you know, this is a very high stakes thing. We're talking about medical advice here. 10% of the time you're saying those translations caused clinically meaningful harm. So, yeah, a bit of a mixed bag there. To, to give us a little bit of a better sense of what we're talking about here in terms of those mistakes, 
Could you uh, maybe run us through some of those sentences that were not translated accurately? Sure. Um, I think uh, one sentence in, in um, particular I think is, is a good example. So uh, the sentence is, you likely have some aching from your fall. Okay, so you fell over, now you have some aching. This is the, what the doctor is saying. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's see what Google Translate comes up with. All right, thank you, Google Translate. You know what, just for good measure, let's hear that one more time. All right, so we have now heard Google Translate's translation. How did it do? Um, so uh, what it what it did is um, it said that your your autumn so the um, the season um, maybe has some has some pain. So uh, what the autumn machine, as in like it thought yes. that fall meant autumn, not like yeah. falling over. Exactly, exactly. And uh, that would uh, pose some issues if you took it literally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you know uh, as a patient you might uh, be confused, and, and obviously to some extent you probably know why you went into the. Um, the emergency department, but I think um, this is a good example of something where a machine algorithm sometimes struggles, um, where fall has has multiple meanings, and I guess the materials that this algorithm was trained on usually interpreted fall to mean uh, the season rather than actually um, falling down or or somebody um, falling. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of those nouns would really throw you for a loop. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Any other examples you want to point to? Sure. Um, I think another example that um, came up, and this one has to do a little bit with uh, with a grammar error, is that um, another clinician said, please try to stay cool, comma, drink plenty of fluids, comma, and stay of out of the heat. So there's that extra of there in the sentence. All right, let me type this one in too. So it was, please try to stay cool, drink plenty of fluids, and stay of out of the heat our listeners can hear right there as you said a little bit of a typo in there two ofs typed it in let us see how google translate does click okay how did google translate do so it did okay on the first parts where there weren't any grammar errors you know the patient knew to stay cool to drink lots of fluid um but then instead of actually asking the patient to stay out of the heat it ask the patients to um, try to maintain their heat or actually inc- increase their heat, which is the opposite meaning of what the clinician intended. Interesting. So the, this is an example of the kind of issue where the doctor is maybe making a small mistake, maybe being a little bit unclear, but a human who is a native English speaker and interpreting these words can figure it out. It's not really that big a deal. But when you put it through the translator, the mistake gets amplified and could cause some real problems. Exactly. Yes. I think um, one of the examples that we actually put in the paper was one where the um, the clinician had typed in, you have a low back stain instead of strain. So they missed uh, one letter, um, which, you know, to, again, to an English speaker, like you said, or English reader, they would they would recognize that that was just a typo. Uh, but then in Spanish, it ended up being translated into something that said, uh, you have a low patch on your back. Um, and then in Chinese, it said, you have a low back spot. So really not um, not understandable to the patient. Again, the patient probably knows why they went into the emergency department, um, but really typos like that do, do make a big difference if you're relying on a machine to translate it. All right, so with all that in mind, with some of the mistakes that we saw there, but with a lot of the successful translations that you identified as well, what advice are you giving to physicians at this point? How should should they be taking Google Translate and bringing it into their doctor's office? Yeah, absolutely. I think 
that we are right now sort of cautiously advising its use, um, meaning specifically that if clinicians are going to use these translations, they absolutely absolutely need to use it one with the English written text. Um, this serves as a reference for um, you know what the clinician is definitely wanting to communicate. And I think two, um, going over the translations with the patient um, using an interpreter. So going over the instructions still verbally uh, with an interpreter so that the patient can see the translations themselves and, and recognize if there's any um, type of discordance or any disagreement between the instructions being uh, being given verbally and the translations that they're they're being that are um, they're reading as well. Now, can I just say, based on the answer that you just give, gave, I mean that's nuts. Like the fact that we are in an age where this feels like space age technology to me. We are in an age where we can bring robot brains into our doctor's room and they're actually making a real benefit for our doctors. They're actually useful. I mean, isn't that kind of crazy that we're at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I think the healthcare has um, has traditionally been maybe a little bit slower to adopt some of some of the technologies. Um, you know, we we still use fax machines, which are I mean, I think some people would argue um, are it's a technology that maybe should have st- stopped being used decades ago. Um, but I, I, you know, I'm I'm really excited personally about I think a lot of the ways that we can really use technology to help um, Im- improve care, especially for um, um, individuals from underserved underserved populations. So um, I think, for example, that um, p- individuals who live in areas where there aren't as many care providers, the options that we have for telehealth services are, are really starting to expand the type of care we can provide in in many areas that uh, have had harder access to specialists or harder access to certain types of providers. I also think, um, you know, technology, like you said, you know, this is Google Translate is, is a free um, tool right now for lots of clinicians. Um, and, and I think there are many other ways where we can use technology to really be able to implement interventions in, in a um, really a low, low cost way. Um, so thinking about even just sending text reminders to, to patients just to remind them about appointments. Um, these are things that we can done that we can do um, without significant um, effort for, you know, each additional appointment. So you know, I think it, many of us in healthcare are really hopeful about about making sh- um, about how to adapt additional technologies to really improve improve our patients' um, healthcare and, and their health as well. And once again, speaking there to Dr. Elaine Kung, who is a research fellow at UC San Francisco. So far on the show, we've heard that automated cars could make our traffic worse, and that automated translations could make our doctor's notes better. But both of the researchers we spoke with today say that what future actually materializes will depend an awful lot on the decisions that we make right now, as these new technologies are being shaped. There's certainly a very utopian vision of autonomous vehicles that allows us to to create more housing and parks and streets um, that are that are open to people. I think there's certainly promise for technology to help address healthcare issues in, in vulnerable populations. But they say it's how you use the tech that matters. We found that sometimes actually by using these new technologies or these new interventions, they can actually increase um, issues of inequity because they're adopted by um, people who already are, are doing uh, well. So I think there's, there's potential for technology to address equity, but we really need to be thoughtful about it and design, design our interventions in a way that they um, consider really all populations. 
In a city, we can take advantage of the ability of autonomous vehicles to park remotely. We can redevelop parking lots and, and build more housing. And we can charge a fair price for the use of public streets. But if we do nothing, if we allow sprawl to happen, as people can live further from their, their work because they can have perhaps have a nap in their autonomous vehicle, if we can kind of go along that path, then it could be a very dystopian future indeed. You've been listening to KCBS's In-Depth. Remember, you can find past episodes of the program online by visiting kcbsradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Do tune in again next week for another In-Depth conversation from KCBS Radio. I'm Keith Manconi, and I'll see you then. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Okay, Google, can you do my taxes for me? Hmm, I found some information for. Can I do my taxes myself? Would that help? No. No problem. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.